Hey, Heron. Hey, Dave. You know, I don't know if we're going to have enough time to do this uh, now because I've only got about an hour, and we could certainly talk for an hour. I got nothing. I mean, I've you know, we can do it if you're interested in talking, and we can and then go further another time. But I yeah, I'd to- say let's let's jump into it an hour. You know, let's see where we get in an okay, hour. Okay, yeah. If we have a need to go any further, we can do it, and then maybe we'll be done in a half hour. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's great. I really appreciate it. Uh, right. Um, I was judging a debate uh, for the high schoolers today and had to drive to the other side of Pittsburgh to do it. And For high ran- schoolers? Yeah. yeah, it was actually really fun. They they are good debaters. What were they debating? Uh, it, all sorts of different things. In fact, they had about ten different uh, oh. formats. Oh, okay. And my favorite was what was called uh, uh, humorous interpretation where they had to essentially memorize a ten-minute uh, dialogue and uh, deliver it. And, I mean, if you think about being a high schooler and getting up and doing a, a humorous dialogue where you're doing voices and a lot of physical motion in front of your peers and adult oh, judges, yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. I, I laugh my head off. A um, lot of good lines, a lot of good delivery, a lot of energy. Hmm. So, you yeah, know, let's jump into I it. I was terrified of public speaking for years. It was a requirement in college, and, uh, and I... I dropped out of the class three times, you know, wow. before I finally made it through it because I was just so terrified of doing it. Uh, but later in life, when I had these burning desires to, to say stuff that I thought was important, it's simple. It's easy to get in front of a huge group. I have no well, problems with it, you know. That's that's what I think is so brilliant about this because, you know, frankly, you're not the only one. Um, you know, when most people rank what they fear, yeah. death is number seven on the list. Number one is public, public speaking. speaking so yeah. The fact that they're doing this with kids early on yeah. to sort of break down that, uh, yeah. you know, the, the barrier and the fear and the, uh, whatever yeah. you call that. Yeah. Uh, well, these I are think, self-selected kids, aren't they? I mean, these are kids who went out for the debate team or something, right? I mean, these aren't right, just which, assigned which, to this. Which made it even all the more impressive that the kids would volunteer to do yeah. this. Well, they're probably all theater majors. <laughs> well, probably are. I bet you're right. So are you recording already? Or Oh, yeah, uh, I record everything. Right. I, I've got it set up. It just records. So Okay, cool. Yeah. So And then edit it and post it. Yeah. Yeah, if you don't mind, I mean, have we'll, at it. Yeah, use whatever yeah. you like. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Huh. Also, you know, first thing that gets me is how you spell your name. <laughs> I've never N-E-L-S-E-N. seen it with an e n at the end. <laughs> well, it's funny because I was going to ask you about Heron. Yeah. Uh, do you do you pronounce the H and where the heck did that come from? Because I know a lot of people named Aaron. Yeah. Usually right. spelled. Um, a A R O N, and I yeah. had I had one of those working for me, and I yeah. also had an E R I N at the same time working for me. Yeah, you know, so it was. Uh, yeah. uh, where did you get your H? And I'll tell you where I got my E. <laughs> well, my story is uh, probably simpler. I changed my name in um, 1995, and uh, in or- I wanted to pay. A, some homage to my parents who named me, I'll write it for you, the name that I was on my birth certificate is Dennis Horn. And uh, when I changed my name, and I changed my name because I had been... On the lamb? 
<laughs> well, in, in some sense, I guess. That's, no. that's why people usually change their yeah. name. Well, there is also a, a tradition in the spiritual world or the, the monastic life uh, that at a certain point you take on a new name. Ah. And, uh, and that was uh, what was going on for me. I'd been involved in, you know, it's, it was my own particular path. I never was a joiner. But at a certain point, I just became really clear that I just wasn't the same person I used to be. And I needed to make that real by taking on a new name. But I wanted to uh, pay homage to my parents. So I wrote my name out. In a phonetic script, you know, the IPA, International Phonetic Alphabet. So in Dennis, of course, there are two N's, but there's only one N sound in Dennis. Okay. So, so right. I wrote it uh, phonetically and then did an anagram of uh, Dennis Horn. And I had a number of options. I could have been, uh, let's see, O. Henderson, uh, Orson Hend, No Nurse Ahead, Edna Hosner, um, or Heron Stone. <laughs> so which one would you pick? <laughs> wow. That is like, first of all, I have never met anybody who um, who wasn't in trouble with the law that changed their name, you know, other than yeah. getting married or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, and that is just fascinating that you also did it as an anagram, yeah. a, a phonetic anagram at that. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it embodies all the tonal qualities of Dennis Horn. And so when you say it, do you pronounce the H, yeah, heron? heron? heron, like the bird. That's Right, exactly, you know, right. just yeah. like the bird. So yeah. I was never totally clear on that before, whether, you, whether <laughs> it was Aaron or Heron. So I know, I you- get that all the time, you know. Uh, in fact, you know, everyone else had a much easier time with me changing my name than I did. It took me months to get used to it. I'd be sitting around with a group of people, and someone would be saying, Heron, hey, Heron. I didn't even hear it. I'd just be sitting there oblivious to the whole thing. Everybody else did fine. But, uh, you know, I finally got used to it now, you know. And when was that? How long ago? 1995. Wow. So you've you've been at it more than a decade. Yeah. Yeah, I'm used to it now. And, uh, and, And, of course, the problem is, is when I say it, everybody hears Aaron. Because, well, that's because Heron sounds weird. Thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, so they think, well, he must have said Aaron. <laughs> so well, I, in fact, if you were French, you wouldn't even be able to say that damn H. That's right. You know. Yeah. So now I, I have to go Heron. My right. Name is Heron Stone. You know. <laughs> wow. Interesting. Well, okay. So I owe you mine back, okay. which also involves a change, but much less romantic and exotic <laughs> than what you did. Uh, but um, my my great grandfather was from Denmark, and uh, it turns out that what uh, Nelson originally was Nielsen, like the Nielsen ratings, or Brigitte Nielsen. I suspect she's a long-lost seventh cousin (laughs) or something like that. And, uh, you know, the son of Neil. And, of course, the same um, uh, convention was used in Sweden. Son of Neil would be Nelson or Nielsen, but with with an O-N instead of an E-N. So it's just the difference between son in Swedish and son in Danish. And, um, you know, apparently the Danes were far more prolific, or sorry, the Swedes were far more prolific than the Danes. Uh, So there are far more Nelsons or Nielsens with an O-N 
than an Ian. Okay, so now my six-year-old great-grandfather, I think this is 1898, coming from a little island off the coast of Denmark, uh, Longland, uh, gets to this country and he's going through Ellis Island and they tell him he's with his older brothers who are not even 16. Could you imagine sending your kids? Because parents didn't come with them. They just really? sent their kids to America. 16-year-old and younger kids coming right. here. Right. Well, they had a place the, to stay, right? They had, they had a Unbe- connection here or something or what? I mean, they weren't just you know, got off the boat and there they were. You know? There must have been somebody to meet them. But actually, I don't know that part of the story. I just know that they, you know, the kids showed up here without parents. And uh, they're going through Ellis Island, and they said, you need to Americanize your name. Uh, Nielsen uh, should be something more American. And they dropped the I to make it Nelson, N-E-L-S-E-N. And, uh, you know, there it is. But, you know, frankly, I've thought of changing my name. In fact, many people have done it for me to N-E-L-S-O-N. Of course, that's what it should be. Everybody knows that. one, right? Well, that's that's <laughs> Swedish, not Danish. Yeah. So there you go. That's, that's where I came okay, from. Okay, well, that explains it then. Yeah, because I, 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 just out of curiosity, you know, I did a, a Google on both those names. And, it, you know, it's ridiculous. You know, there are... Almost all with the O-N, so I'd never seen that before. Well, in fact, David Nelson O-N is outrageously common because back in the, uh, at least for my generation, I was born in 1960, and, uh, of course, somewhere back there was the... Uh, the Aussie and Harriet thing. Aussie and Harriet. Yeah. Which, you know, right up there with Leave it to Beaver and my oh, yeah. three, some of those shows, Lawrence Welk, all those shows oh, of yeah. that generation... And, uh, you know, they had a, a son, David Nelson. And uh, so David Nelson, was that was sort of like a celebrity name. Yeah. So there are an amazing number of David Nelsons out there, although I'm one of the few that has N-E-L-S-E-N. Yeah, right. Yeah, it caught me off. I, I, I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. yeah, you know, probably the biggest hassle I've had with that name is there is actually a David Nelson with an O-N who is on the uh, terrorist uh, no fly list that the um, yeah. um, well it used to be the um, FAA now it's Homeland Security whatever uh, when I check in if I am not flying on one of my traditional airlines where I'm using a frequent flyer number which apparently gets me off of the uh, special yeah. list uh, if I can't be um, identified as as like the uh, you know me David Nelson as yeah. opposed to this guy this terrorist from Tennessee named David Nelson they print four S's on my boarding pass which entitles me to all sorts of special treatment oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, special yeah. pat downs and scans through wow. security and wow. uh, it turns out that uh, this is such a common occurrence uh, that David Nelson is such a common name, and there are so many David Nelsons that get this special uh, treatment that um, uh, one day uh, National Public Radio on their All Things Considered show just interviewed all sorts of David Nelsons, including a senator from Oregon, if I remember correctly, uh, about their special treatment during travel. So, you know, go figure. It, it, it scares me only a little bit that my name is spelled differently by one letter and they're picking me up. You know, do they really think the terrorists are going to make minor changes to the spelling yeah, of yeah, their Yeah, that'll names? fool them. <laughs> right. <laughs> They'll never change get me now. From an o to an e. They'll never figure it out. So I don't know about the... Uh, don't, don't, don't take me there. Don't take me there. Don't take me there. <laughs> That's a good story. 
Uh, well, you know, I have a couple of, you know, I've just got all sorts of questions for you. You know, I, I when I read your bio, uh, a couple of things came up. In, For instance, your BS in systems engineering. I'm just sort of curious, what, how, what does systems engineering mean? I mean, that's, well, that's so broad, great, that's that could mean... Great question. You, yeah. Great question. And BS, for those of you who maybe aren't familiar, does mean Bachelor of Science. It is an engineering degree, not uh, not BS in the other sense. Um, systems engineering is the, sc- the study of large-scale system design. Um, so, for example, we could be talking about um, the airline, since we're talking airlines, airline reservation system. The system to figure out what airlines you're going to put where and how do you optimize routes and flight hours and utilization of your expensive capital equipment while minimizing um, fuel use while you've got these constraints about pilots and flight crews. You know, that's an example of a very complicated, large-scale system problem. And so... It's a little odd that they use the word engineering in there for that. Well, because it is engineering. Um, you know, the, I took, uh, four semesters of calculus. I took, um, statics and uh, dynamics and all sorts of statistics, uh, probably four semesters of statistics. Um, and then something that's very closely related is what's called operations research. Well, that was my next question. <laughs> was after well, we handled this, I wanted to go on to operations research. <laughs> What the heck is Because I've got an OR degree from Stanford, uh, the systems engineering degree being from University of Arizona out in Tucson. By the way, the sunniest city in the United States. Phenomenal place to live. Yeah. It's been a long time since I lived there. Um, anyway, uh, systems Wait, engineering. Where is it in Arizona? Where is it? Uh, sorry, Tucson, Arizona. In Tucson, okay. which is yeah, yeah that's um, you know the big city in Arizona that everybody knows. In fact, I believe it's now the fifth or sixth largest metropolitan area in the country and growing phenomenally quickly yeah. is Phoenix. Right. But about a hundred miles to the south, mostly south and a little bit east, but mostly south of Phoenix, uh, getting not right up against Mexico, but down towards the Mexican border, is uh, Tucson, and it's a very old city. Uh, it's been around for a couple hundred years, whereas Phoenix, uh, Tucson is a little cooler. It's sort of a little bit higher elevation. Phoenix didn't really develop until the invention uh, or wide-scale application. <laughs> right, air conditioning. Yeah, you couldn't right. live in the Valley of the Sun yeah. up until yeah. – air conditioning was invented, as I recall, about 100 years ago. But for the first 50 years, it was not – Applied, not probably more like yeah. the first, yeah, first 50 years, was not applied uh, commercially. It was, or, or, or for uh, residentials, yeah. so it was only, um, let me take that again. I know, it, edit well, or I not. remember when I was a kid uh, that it was a big deal to go into a restaurant or something that had air conditioning. They would put right, that on people, their sign outside. We have air conditioning. Exactly, <laughs> just like we have HBO. Yeah. Um, it turns out that. The air conditioning um, for consumers, for, for your residents, really didn't become common until after World War II was over. Yeah. And with the um, you know, sort of the development of consumer uh, air conditioning, uh, living in Phoenix, where you will have perhaps during the summer 100 days in a row where the temperature is over 100 degrees. Oh, yeah. I mean, without exception. And you might have 10 days in a row 
at a, at a click where the temperature is over 110 degrees. And it's not uncommon for it to be over 115. And we're talking temperature yeah. in the shade. Yeah. Uh, go get in your car if it's been sitting out in the sun. And, um, you know, you can scar yourself if you touch the metal part of your seatbelt. Yeah. So, um, Back to uh, Tucson, it's south of, of uh, Phoenix by about 100 miles, and the University of Arizona has been there for over 100 years. Uh, it used to be called the Arizona Normal School. I don't know what that that was common back then. Don't ask me. I've heard me what, that before. But, I, that's something I should put on my list of things to yeah, look things up. to investigate. <laughs> yeah, right. right. So uh, I, I there aren't all that many programs in the country um, where you study systems engineering or, for that matter, operations research. Very closely related disciplines, but they really are the disciplines of how you solve. Uh, various kinds of real-world problems in as optimal a po- as possible a way. Uh, these are problems that may not have an exact solution. So let me give you the classic one because it's real easy to understand and, and you won't uh, believe how hard it is to solve. So, um, by the way, it has now been solved now that computers are so common, yeah. but... F- Dozens of years, this was the classic. You're not going you know, to go into the salesman's route. Deal. I am. Yeah, it's I a traveling that, yeah. salesman yeah. problem. If I'm you have that stuff, yeah. Yeah, if you, you have, here's the question. It's a, yeah. if, you have a, if you are a salesman and you've got to visit the capital of all 50 states, yeah. what is the shortest route to take? <laughs> right. And it turns out that that is not a real easy problem to solve because, of course, you can pick 50 starting places. Oh, yeah. And then are 49 next, next yeah, step. Factorial. Exactly, factorial. Yeah. So you, you're obviously a, a mathematician or engineer as well. Well, I've and studied this is, a little bit of that stuff, yeah. Yeah, try, try writing this one on your computer and solving oh, it just by iterating. It yeah, uh, won't yeah. finish anytime soon. No, it won't. So, so <laughs> I studied how to solve large-scale system design, which ultimately my first job was at AT&T, and I was working on the telephone network. And the telephone network, cool. you know, I've got – a call that needs to go from New Jersey to California, and I've got a thousand ways to route that call, and there's different volume on different trunks between different switching systems. How do I put that through for sort of balancing quality versus cost versus capacity? That's a classic systems engineering yeah, right. or operations research problem. So that's, you know, it's, um, it's a, a, a very applied kind of engineering degree where you're solving very practical uh, business problems. And so, again, another one of my favorite business problems is you're a newspaper um, printer. And, again, that's becoming sort of rarer and rarer. Maybe many of our listeners won't even know what a newspaper is. But you're printing newspaper on newsprint. It comes in all sorts of different you, – you get newsprint um, rolls, which are different widths that can be cut in different ways, and how do you optimize the utilization of your paper? Uh, you know, yeah. so those are the kind of problems that you learn how to either um, solve what's called optimally, that's a perfect solution, or solve heuristically, that is yeah. at least workable. what's called, yeah, workable, <laughs> yeah. not too wasteful, maybe a local minimum, if not necessarily proven to be perfect. Yeah. So there you go. That's operations research and systems engineering. So that could be in, I mean, that could be applied to almost anything then. I mean, it, there's no real limit on to what fields that might be applied in. 
Yeah, I think yeah, yeah, pretty much any business, um, any large scale business. Did um, you ever get into uh, what what's called general systems theory? Was that anything that you guys ever studied? And, you know, not. I would I would say not general systems theory, but I did have some specific theories of system design. Yeah. I had a guy um, who was actually the author of the book. In fact, I got to take classes between University of Arizona and Stanford from the people who invented this stuff. So I, I took a class from, I think the guy's name was Dr. Johnson, who had something called the Tricotyledon Theory of System Design. I uh, The guy who invented the classic uh, OR problem-solving method called the Simplex Method, uh, that was... Um, Danzig, I, I got to meet Dr. Danzig at Stanford. And then uh, Hillier, Dr. Hillier and Dr. Lieberman, who did a lot of the early pioneering work in OR, you know, I took classes from those guys out of wow. Stanford. So, you know, the neat thing about sort of a small, narrow discipline like that is there aren't all, you know, the, you could do Stanford or Arizona, Michigan or um, I forget where it was, Albany or uh, uh, Ithaca, uh, New York. There were a few places where there were special uh, programs, but uh, not many. And so if you chose this discipline, you actually got to connect with the people that were making it happen. How has that worked out for TalkShow? I mean, is, is well, stuff- I'm going to say that it only loosely relates. And in fact, I'm, I'm a long way away from my roots at this point. So I spent the first nine years of my career uh, working in Bell Laboratories. That was probably the premier or certainly one of the very top research institutions in the country at the time. And this was the 80s, back when AT&T had one million employees. And so for nine years, I worked, uh, you know, in the technical bits and bytes of the telecom network, network architecture, uh, protocol design, routing, all of that kind of stuff. And that was very much along the lines of what I had studied. But uh, after, after nine years, an interesting thing happened. I was uh, doing um, network design for specific private corporate customers, large corporate networks. And so, for example, my team, by this time I was a a supervisor or manager, my team designed the network that uh, was used for airline reservations for TWA, Northwest, and Delta. The three of them had formed a consortium, which they called WorldSpan. They put in this data network, which was based on a technology at the time called X25, which is now blindingly slow, but back then it was state-of-the-art. And um, I had to do the design. And then I had to fly down to Atlanta to meet with the executives of WorldSpan to present to them, you know, here's my design and why you should spend a gazillion dollars with AT&T on, on uh, implementing it, which they did. And it turned out I really liked this customer interaction. And so, uh, you know, as, as you can probably tell from my, my, um, my talk shoe career, I'm, I'm sort of a social person, um, maybe not your typical engineer. And so after about a decade of doing, you know, true engineering and OR kind of projects, I even uh, was a software programmer in the early days, Unix and C, uh, you know, that stuff got invented at AT&T. Um, I, um, you know, got into these, um, you know, softer areas, more business uh, areas. And again, the fact that I had taken OR and it was sort of an applied engineering degree to business problem solving is probably a hint that this is where I was going to end, end up. But 
in the end, um, I, I moved on to the, uh, the business unit side of AT&T into marketing and product management. And again, product management is a term that people probably haven't heard. Most people haven't, but I actually think it is the hardest and most important job in corporate America. And I say that even in talk shoe, uh, you know, I, I'm the founder and the CEO. I actually think the job that Aaron Browser did, our product manager, defining what TalkShoe was initially and evolving it through the early days was far tougher and more important uh, to what TalkShoe is today than what I did as the CEO. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, what people think it is is more important in some ways than what it is. <laughs> right, well, and, and the job of a product manager is to figure out not just sort of the the marketing and messaging of it, but really the reality of what it is. So yeah. the reason that a product management job is so hard is you have to um, you have to take this concept. Okay, so a guy named Dave Nelson shows up and sits with Aaron at a little Panera bread shop on a uh, Saturday morning in April of 2005 and says, Aaron, I got this idea. You know, it's this talk shoe thing where people can call in and talk to each other. Aaron had to go out and do the market research to figure out what's out there. Uh, you know, today that would be, well, Skypecast is gone, but yeah. there's blog talk radio and there's internet radio and there's, um, there's all sorts of different forms of communication, uh, chat and email and, um, writing on people's Facebook walls and all that. Aaron has to look at all that and, and figure out what the heck is TalkShoe going to be so that it has a unique position in the marketplace, that it's doing something different than what other people are doing, that it's creating some value that's different than you can get from other other places. So you've got to be able to synthesize all this competitive information. And then, of course, the limited resource in any company like TalkShoe or probably any company is you only have a certain number of engineering cycles. You don't have unlimited ability to build things. And you've got you know, potential customers. Do I go after somebody who's willing to pay me to do something? Or classically, you you segment the market. You find groups of customers that have simul- similar behaviors and you try to go after the largest group, not just the one guy waving a check because that might be a dead end or a one-off. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the product manager has to do this sort of market analysis, competitive analysis, and ultimately decide what is engineering going to build. And how, so, how long had TalkShoe been around in your head before you actually started taking steps to realize it? It was about two years. And the reason was because I was running my last company, my previous company, a company called CoManage. Uh, I had raised 60, a little bit more than $60 million in venture capital. Uh, I had built the thing for seven years. And, you know, I was only five years into it at that point. You don't just walk away from something like that when you've got the new idea you're excited about. And so for two years, TalkShoe was just a concept in my head. I would think about it as I'd go running. Uh, you know, it sort of bounced what around other there. things were you familiar? I mean, uh, Skypecast was, was Skypecast going at this point? No, no, this no. is way before that. So Skypecast was actually launched in May of 2006, right before TalkShoe was launched in June, and we'd been building it for 14 months before that. So, so the idea so back was up, there. <laughs> yeah. Back up for three years before that, there yeah. was no Skypecasting, there was no blog talk radio, there was no TalkShoe, there was no Now Live. Um, you know, there was yeah. n- very little 
uh, in the way of what you would call consumer teleconferencing, other yeah. than a three-way call. Yeah. That was about as much as was out there. And, in fact, the whole idea will sound, where it came from, sounds almost nothing like, so, so get this story, sounds almost nothing like what TalkShoe is. This may, might be a surprising origin. So uh, this was um, two years before 2005, so back up to about 2003, and I don't remember the exact date anymore, although I might be able to reverse engineer it because I was reading a story. I was on a business trip, and I bought the Wall Street Journal as on page something like A8. I was just reading a story, a very routine story, uh, not too many column inches, about eBay. It was just the quarterly earnings report on eBay. And, of course, eBay had had another stellar quarter. And I, I use eBay to, to sell stuff and buy stuff occasionally. Not a whole lot, but like I, I, yeah. I bought a ski jacket, and I sold my old projection TV screen, and so I have some experience with eBay, and it wasn't like, oh, this is an unbelievable website or some kind of magic, and yet eBay is conquering the world, at least back in 2003, and so as an entrepreneur, I started thinking about, uh, sort of asking myself the question, what is it about eBay that is so magic, and I concluded it really came down to one thing. What eBay is, it's not the website, it's not buy it now or auctions or whatever, the actual secret of eBay, the magic of eBay, if you really break it down to the core, is it is almost magical in its ability to connect two people that have an incredibly specific interest. That interest might be a 1934 baseball card or it might be a particular (laughs) beanie baby or who knows what the heck it is. But eBay is a connection engine. It's a people connection engine for the purpose of trading products. Now, I'm a telecom guy, right? I know how to connect people to talk, and I got to thinking, what if you built a connection engine to connect people that had specific interests, even very narrow interests, not to trade products, but to trade information? And that was the question. How would you do that that led to TalkShoe? And that was in my head for about two years. I'm a runner. I, you know, I'd be busy almost seven by 24 on my business at the time called Co-Manage. And every once in a while I go running and I start thinking about this talk shoe thing. How would you connect people to trade information? And that's ultimately, uh, in uh, April of 2005 when I got a term sheet from a company called Syndesis to buy my company that I co-founded, uh, Co-Manage. Uh, then I um, called up my friend Aaron, and I said, Aaron, how about you come wor- come to work for me? Let's define this new thing. I call it TalkShoe. We'll change the name eventually, but I'll call it TalkShoe for now. And, uh, you know, Aaron said yes. And so some uh, is the first Saturday, uh, April 2005. I actually think it was April 1st, April Fool's Day. And uh, we met and got started on TalkShoe. And 14 months later, we launched the first version of the product. Wow. And that was when? April of 05. The first version of the product came out in June of 06. So just about two and a half years ago at this yeah. point. Yeah. Well, I only discovered it in September when, uh, when Skypecast was murdered. By your oh, just eBay. this September, right? Yeah, so, yeah. well, we were a little nervous when Skypecast launched. They launched literally 
one month before we launched, yeah. so we weren't even out there when Skypecast came out. And it's like, oh my gosh, they've got these ideas of well, did bringing. You, how did you find out? I mean, nobody knew about Skypecast for almost a year and a half or two years. It was oh, completely but I was, under the surface. You knew about it, though. I was watching this space, or I should say the people working for me were watching this space, the idea of bringing people together yeah. to talk about a topic. And so whenever anything, I, well, I knew about When did you find Skypecast out about Skypecast? The day it launched. May really? 3rd, 2006. Yeah, May- I mean, I discovered it on May 4th, actually, just by blind luck. Okay, and- well, I was looking for it, right? You just yeah. might have stumbled across it, but I, I saw when they launched, I saw when Blog Talk Radio launched, I saw when Now Live launched, I saw when Skypecast went away. You know, I watched for this stuff. And yeah. I also watched the conferencing companies, you know, freeconference.com. Yeah. And I also watch the social networking plays. Like, uh, you know, I spend a huge amount of time um, involved myself with Twitter uh, and uh, Facebook and MySpace and my one of my favorites, Ning. Those are all services that are also about bringing people together around common interests. And in fact, I break it down into one of two categories. It's either people self-grouping or self-organizing around a person – or around a topic. So yeah. MySpace and Facebook are mostly organized around a person. You know, I have 500 friends and they're all organized around me or they're organized around a topic. Yahoo Sports, it's my favorite team. Ning, it's my specific social activity. I could be, you know, military uh, or firefighters or, you know, you name it, whatever the topic is. But people seem to organize online in one of these two ways, and there's lots and lots of different forms that they communicate. TalkShoe is one of the few that they can communicate via voice. Most, of, If you think about it, most of the rest of these – I might be sharing pictures or my favorite music, but most of the yeah, rec- rest yeah. of them are text. I'm yeah. texting you. Yeah. And the thing about text is it's uh, a very thin it's mode. Unemotional. Of it doesn't, exactly. It doesn't, right? well, it doesn't get you to feel like you actually know this person. Exactly, and it's also not immediate and interactive. And so here you and I are talking, we're feeding off of each other, we're hearing the enthusiasm or fear or whatever it is in each other's voices. And to me, that is so much richer. That's a whole, yeah, you're right. That's a whole different arena. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. That was why I felt that way when I discovered Skypecast. I mean, the minute I discovered it, I knew that, that was uh, something I'd been looking for for years. I was never into chatting, you know, with text. I mean, I, I just right. never Well, did chatting it. is, it's, yeah, exactly. It's very um, unsatisfying. I mean, a lot of good things about chat, and I love Twitter. I think Twitter is like this awesome tool, um, but it is limited in its communication you know, depth or robustness yeah. or whatever word you want to put on it. And what There's I love about spontaneity in it, you know, it's like when yep. you and I are talking, you know, it's too, there's, it's, it happens too quickly to plan it out. Well, I'm going way out on a limb here, but yeah. that you weren't planning on talking about names or schools or where talks you can. I mean, uh, we well, yeah, I had no idea. Oh, I wrote down a couple questions that I wanted right. to, to but, cover. But, but yeah, I just figured we'd start talking scripted. and see where it goes. Right. Know? Nobody scripted this, and and yet we're we're really connecting. Now, I will say we're doing this one to one on Skype, which is creating a great quality recording uh, that we can put out there. And in fact, the major audience, even on TalkShoe, is listening. 
listening to the recording on a time-shifted basis. So that's fine. But the difference between what we're doing right here and the typical talk shoe call is we're just doing one-to-one. And what I love about talk shoe is it actually brings that group interaction, yeah. that group connection yeah. uh, for you know what might be three or might be 300 people. Yeah. And that, uh, what we're finding, that is a very compelling experience. And so the average time when somebody calls in to a talk shoe call, whether it's on cell phone, landline, or voice over IP, the average time, in fact, I, I, I'll strike that last part. It's not voice over IP. It's real phone calls, landline or, yeah. or cell phone. Average time, when we first started TalkShoe, they were staying connected for 31 minutes. It's now over 63 and a half minutes each and every caller on average. Average? Wow. Average, which means that people really like this experience of connecting with the richness and depth of voice with other people that share their interest. And in fact, I think for about 100,000 years, this need, this desire, the satisfaction from that kind of connection has been wired into our DNA as oh, long yeah. as we've been talking. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. That's where TalkShoe came from. Well, you know, I'll tell you, one of the things I've that I think one of your greatest innovations in TalkShoe is the text uh, method in your live app. Pro, you know, your live pro app, that the way it presents text threads and the ability to respond to a specific one with color and all that, I, that's brilliant. You know, well, thank I, you. That, that uh, really is. I've never seen anything like that. And compared to the standard mode of text, it, 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 it's, you know, it, it's really brilliant. It's unique, right? And what, what we were trying to accomplish there was two big things. So the, the, the one that's probably obvious is using the color coding, what we wanted you to do was be able to respond to a specific person. Right. But yeah. while that was still part of the public dialogue. Yeah. So there is no private response mode by intention yeah. Yeah. in talk to. So you're going to be responding to somebody but in a way that everyone else yeah. can see it. Yeah. The second thing though that we're trying to, to do there uh and why we put text into talk show in the first place is because um, there is, back to sort of close a, a loop here or a circle, there is a fear of public speaking. There is a fear of talking when you're being recorded. It's sort of a natural thing that people start out with. It goes away. It breaks down pretty quickly. Yeah. But the way we help break it down is by what we call the participation commitment ladder. It turns out that about 95% of people who are listening to us now or who listen to anything that's created on TalkShoe, find the recording. They find it in iTunes or they find it on a you know, a player badge in Facebook or MySpace or Ning or they find it through a uh, Google search because we do some speech-to-text stuff to make the search engine friendly. Lots of ways that people find it, but they usually find the recording first. 19 times out of 20. Really? Well, they listen to it a little bit and they realize after time, hey, this is, th- these are real people. They're talking. I could join them live. And yet, when I first show up live, I'm a little bit shy and I'm just listening. 
And the next easiest thing to do, once somebody has showed up live and they're listening, is to type a message, right? That's not quite as scary as speaking, calling in, having my voice heard by other people or recorded, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, the the very thing that makes TalkShoe good, which is the depth of connection, the fact that we're really much more connected than we are in text, also makes TalkShoe a little scary compared to, you know, your average internet experience. And so the idea of the text is to bridge you yeah. from listening to talking. It's that, that baby step, the training wheels in between. And ultimately, people who start to text a lot, now they're participating. Yeah. Now I'm starting to feel comfortable interacting with you. And talking is then a much easier step to take than if you were jumping all the way from listen only. Yeah, and plus there are side conversations that get going in there that don't even... When I'm in the middle of a conversation with someone, I usually hide the window. I don't even want to see what's going on in text. Well, it's really great you said that because... mm -hmm. You know, you're getting to, I think, another thing about the talk show formula that works pretty well, right? The, 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 uh, we, we could have 300 people call in at the same time, but you know what? Probably hard to have more than about five of them talking. Yeah. And so the text gives everyone else something to do. Yeah, they're right? all talking they, to each other. Yeah. It's the peanut yeah. gallery. Yeah. They're commenting and they're asking yeah. each other questions. Yeah. The thing I love about being a host on talk show, like I do this home wine making show or I do my talk show how to show yeah. or whatever. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. Somebody asks a question. I have no idea. Well, if I voice that question on talk show, it's a good bet that somebody listening on the talk show live client will text me back an answer or a website or yeah. something yeah. that will help me be a much more intelligent host or call leader. So, yeah. I I use that text a lot, not necessarily to read along because it is sort of hard to talk and read at the same time, but to get help with, hey, sure. we're tasting a, a wine tonight. What percentage of cab grapes, a Cabernet grapes are in this thing? And you know what? 30 seconds later, I'll Somebody have my answer. Hey, Dave, yeah. it's 86.3%. <laughs> I just got it yeah. off the Mandavi website. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, well, uh, yeah, there, that's another thing is that it's so – it's so easy to shape talk show to any particular style that you want. For like I say, for me, I mostly do just one on ones. You know, I, I'm there to, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't even think of what I'm doing as a show. I, I have a conversation. If people want to listen, fine. <laughs> you know, and if they want to talk, then they can ask for the mic. You know, but uh, it, it's just as easy to do a show and to use the text. In a you know in a really productive way you know it's there's you know there's well we've talked before I've you know said it you know after I despaired when Skypecast died and I looked around I tried a couple other things but when I found Talkshoe I knew immediately this was it you know this is you know this is better than Skypecast uh, was in many many ways with the one exception that we've talked about but. Uh, right. What I like about TalkShoe, and again, Skypecast was very limited in probably three ways right off the top of my head. Number one, it did not really um, uh, allow for easy calls from regular landlines and cell phones. Not that it was impossible, but generally you had no, to it was, You had to be on uh, Skype. Yeah, you had yeah, to have right. Skype. So, uh, whereas TalkShoe, you can sort of call yeah. you know, yeah. any voice over IP program, any landline, any yeah. cell phone. 
Um, number two, um, Skypecast was uh, not uh, generally uh, recorded, and it turns out that there's a certain continuity to the recordings and people being able to listen to things um, after the fact that I think was uh, um, was important uh, to why uh, TalkShoe was as popular as it was. And then number three, which is almost a, a derivative of number two, is there's no concept of sort of subscribing to an RSS or, you know, being able to get the the, 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 the pull content instead of the push content. And again, we find so many people, they find something they like on TalkShoe, they click that subscribe button, and then they've got it. They're, they're tied in. And, yeah. and so um, Skypecast was sort of a different thing. And, you know, very limited, 10 callers typically. If you got over that, the, the quality would sort of break down. The neat thing about TalkShoe is the technology at the core of TalkShoe was first built for NASA. NASA wanted to get 4,000 people on a phone call together when they're launching the shuttle. And later that expanded to 10,000. So with TalkShoe, while we arbitrarily limit call size today to, to 300 people, any call on the technology we use can conceivably go to 10,000. Wow. And it's built with all of this wonderful technology. It measures the audio level of each co- incoming call. Uh, so, you know, you pick out the level and you can adjust it up or down by well, 10 mostly decibels. It's, it's just going to be, I mean, when you talk about those numbers, you, I mean, again, you, it's, you can't really have more than a few mics on uh, in any real situation. So right, you're but talking you might about feeding. Turn on. You might turn on any given one when yeah. somebody raises their hand. Yeah, and so yeah, you're right. You don't have all of them. So essentially, time. what you're doing is just is pushing the sound out to people. But that's still pretty good if you can do that for a couple of hundred people. <laughs> exactly, and yeah. and indeed, talks you can, and then literally. Have you, what, have you ever had? Have you ever max, maxed out? Uh, oh. Every week we have calls that hit the 300 really? max. Absolutely. Every week. Some of those calls tend to be private calls. There are these closed networks, and so you might not oh, see okay. them right. uh, typically on TalkShoe. But we, we've had calls many times where there have been 1,000 participants, 300 on the phone hitting the max, another 700 audio streaming. We've even had some calls that have gone over 2,000 participants what live. Subject, what, uh, what kinds of subjects uh do that. Well, that that one that went over two thousand people. Uh, get this, I, I I can't explain it, but it was uh, a bunch of people who were into uh, bicycling. So it was a website that was focused around biking, biking as in bicycles, not motorcycles. Yeah. And they had a particular expert who was showing up to talk about weight loss secrets for women bicyclists. Now, can you imagine sort of a more narrow topic than that? <laughs> but, I mean, that's what TalkShoe is. It's a, this connection engine where people who have a very specific interest can talk to each other. And 2,000, more than 2,000 women bicyclists showed up live to hear some weight loss tips. Wow. Go figure. Well, I'm doing good if I can get seven or eight people, I figure. <laughs> yeah, which, by the way, is, it's, frankly, it's about the normal on TalkShoe. Generally, if we looked at the average cross whole network, the average is 10 participants live. Uh-huh. So, you know, we do have, like I said, every week, calls that go over 300 that hit the max and then have people in an audio streaming only mode. Um, but uh, average cross whole network is, is 10. And it sort of depends on, you know, 
who you are, what your topic is, how much you promote it, you know, how many yeah. followers you have. There's a million things that factor oh, yeah. into it. Yeah. And frankly, for my wine shows, while I do have hundreds of people that listen to the recorded episodes in a given week, generally it's about 10 live participants. Yeah. And that's just fine. That's fun. That's, that's exciting well, that's all, to me. A yeah. very personal connection with those 10 people. Well, that's why, yeah, I say if I can, if I meet one person and have a really good conversation and make a connection with somebody out there in the world, then, you know, I don't really care who's listening. It's nice that I get quite a few downloads, but uh, the real satisfaction is, is making these connections with people around the planet. I totally agree because we as humans are wired in our DNA to want to connect to other people who share our interests, <laughs> people who aren't trying to kill us. Hey, that you know? sounds like an idea. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know, speaking of which, I, I think since you can't kill each other over the phone, I think there's probably a million interesting things you could do. Um, even with people who are adversaries, whether those are, oh, yeah. uh, you know, ethnic conflicts or divorce cases or, you know, whatever argument there might happen to be put that out into the public forum and let people you know well you know one of the things i've discovered uh, over the last what three years now i guess doing this is is that the quality of conversations that i've had here uh are far better than what i get when i meet people face to face that face to face there's a sort of hesitance on people's part to open up and be honest whereas here i'm sometimes embarrassed <laughs> by the honesty that with pe- with which people respond to some of the stuff that I'm talking about you know i mean it's just i can't imagine them doing that in starbucks well okay if you need honesty i got to say everything to this point i said was a lie <laughs> No, I like your point. I like your point. Uh, you know, enough comedy jokes, as Steve Martin would say. I, I do. Um, I'm a fan of Steve Martin, by the way, and George Carlin. And well, who uh, couldn't be? Listen, yeah, really. I mean, yeah, George, George Carlin. Carlin. Yeah, yeah, uh, man. He was. I, well, he was. You know, I, he's one of the guys I regret never having met. I, I really blew it because he and I. Uh, he had a, a love of language, like mine, in many ways, and. You know, and I just, I'm so stupid to not have made a connection with that guy because he was, he was great. Yeah, he just died recently. Yeah, I, I did yeah. see him perform live once uh, in Phoenix at a theater in the round. Uh, he was superb. Um, you know, probably everybody knows his, um, you know, the seven words you can't say on television. Yeah. But uh, I, I loved his observations about language, everything from his oxymorons, like, yeah. uh, you know, jumbo uh, shrimp, jumbo shrimp <laughs> yeah. hot water heater, yeah. uh, yeah. action, military intelligence. intelligence, right, exactly, <laughs> yeah, male intellect, I mean, there's, there was so many that were uh, brilliant, yeah. but he, he also had a way uh, with language, like, I remember, you know, if you beat yourself up and put yourself down, are you like sort of back to normal? <laughs> and he just, it was the, the yeah. yeah, he had a real ear for picking up on these weird little language uh, things that we do. Yeah, and, uh, he yeah. really, really did. So um, anyway, I uh, back to the point where we went off on this tangent. I do like talk shoe for that reason. It's a real uh, conversation. Um, and I hadn't actually sort of compared it to real life meetings. I usually compare it the other way, uh, you know, to texting on the internet. Oh, yeah. um, but it is it is a way 
that I think in this internet world today, we have access to more information and more connections than ever. And so we are, if you will, digitally rich. But it has created a certain kind of poorness or poverty uh, from a connection standpoint. I don't think so. I disagree. (laughs) Let me tell you. Uh, It's a controversy. All right. Listen, let me tell you about I go uh, to a Starbucks nearby here almost every afternoon for two or three hours to read and write and hang out. And now I do my talk shoot room from, from there. Where but, is here for you, if you don't mind? Oh, I'm, in, I'm in uh, Orange County, California. Okay, all right, cool. Yeah. Nice, nice place. Yeah, it is. Um, and but you know, I, I going to Starbucks every day for the last five years. I can say honestly, I have met exactly one interesting person there. Now I'm picky. I mean, you know, there are plenty of nice people. I've had lots of conversations there with people that I, you know, ended up sitting around and talking with. But I've actually only met one person who was actually interested in the kind of stuff I'm interested in, you know, politically, scientifically, various other domains. And that relationship continues. But when I was doing Skype casting, I was meeting four or five people a week that felt like they were my brothers. You know, they may have been in uh, Romania or Morocco or Korea <laughs> or someplace. But, you know, and and on talk show, I'm not yeah, saying as many. I'm sorry, what? Nadia from Morocco yet? Uh, I know I spent some time talking to her along the way. Oh, Nadia, yeah. Uh, she, yeah she's a, a good friend now. Uh, there you go. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm saying is that, in fact, I moved recently. And uh, in the process of, of moving, I realized how untraumatic it was because there was absolutely no disruption in my friendships. The people that live in my neighborhood, uh, I never even met most of them, and I knew some of them to wave to. Uh, but actually, all of my friends are friends in the Matrix, and I really do think this is the sort of early beginnings of the Matrix. It's only audio right now. It's primitive. But this space that you and I are in right now, it's not like you're there and I'm here. We're both here in this. Now, we're, we're definitely together, and I don't think we actually have an argument here, but I'm going to say that um, most people are not experiencing yet this voice-to-voice connection that for both of us is so rich. Oh, of course. And so no, most people for, are not. You're right. For most people on the Internet, and you know, it could be Skypecast or TalkShow or XYZ, yeah. but most people on the Internet haven't done that, aren't doing that. What they're doing right. is they've got you know 500, quote, friends, unquote, in Facebook, yeah. and you know they're writing on each other's walls, and it's a very superficial yeah, I agree. and I think emotionally unfulfilling kind of relationship. But that's not a problem with the uh, technology. That's a problem with people themselves. See, I've got a fairly low opinion of most Homo sapiens. I actually think that uh, Homo sapiens really aren't a species. We are an interim between the language or the monkeys, the language monkeys that existed for the last I don't know hundred thousand. 500,000 years, nobody really knows how far back language goes. 
And I think uh, I and a bunch of people I've met recently and read about and read their books are actually the harbingers of a new species. And the distinction is language. It's not genetics that makes the difference anymore. Evolution is really left biology behind. How we think and communicate is more important than who we can impregnate. Interesting. Well, I think it's going to get a lot more interesting than that because um, you were the one who introduced the movie The Matrix. I love that movie. Yeah. Uh, Not just because it's a great movie. I love great entertainment, but... uh, The ideas. uh, The idea is amazing. And it's not, um, frankly, I think... um, very far away. Well, are you you know uh, who Ray Kurzweil is? I, I am, and in fact, I think the whole singularity. Okay, yeah. and we're probably getting a little yeah. bit over the head from, for some listeners. Listen, but I think Dave, it's coming. Wait, Dave, so, stop for a minute, Dave. I don't care about the listeners. I didn't start this. This is going to go off on my place. This is a conversation between you and me. If the listeners can't deal with it, that's their problem. I love your attitude. We're here to have a talk and to explore each other's brains, and then we'll share that. And the people that like it, cool. The people that understand it, fine. The people that don't, well, fine. Maybe they'll be moved to look up who Ray Kurzweil is. Exactly. Well, they probably left way before. Oh, they probably left a long time ago. Yeah, but that's okay. (laughs) I love the fact that you brought that up because I think that Ray is on exactly the right track. If you look at the... Um, speed at which biology operates versus electronics. There's absolutely no doubt whatsoever in my mind that uh, we might only be one billionth of the way there, but by I think he says it's 2041 or 2043. I forget exactly what. 30 to 50 years, basically. Exactly. Computer technology, electron. I won't even call it computer. Electronic technology, because it could be biological based computer. We don't even know what it is. Yeah, it's going to be. Electronic based technology will equal and then so quickly surpass the human brain, but we will ultimately merge and blend and be. One and the same, and so back to your point about um, you know humans being a a, a step in yeah. evolution, a step in development. I totally agree, yeah. and I don't know if you know. I dearly hope I live to be a part of this because there's a certain immortality that's going to happen. I'm 48. Oh, you got a good chance. I've got a shot. I'm healthy. I'm a runner. I yeah. eat well. And um, yeah. but you know that said, you know my kids. Or their yeah, kids. Yeah. There's very, very little doubt that that they will uh, find this 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 blending of biology and electronics. And you know, there's there's probably a, a type of immortality that will occur. Oh, and not a type a of not a type of immortality. <laughs> it's called immortality. I mean. Yeah, we don't need the monkeys anymore. Actually, we can dump the monkeys and exist totally. I think you're right. Although my college roommate Howard and I, I even I've lost so far track. Uh, you know, I don't know where the heck Howard is these days. But but Howard and I, he was my sophomore college roommate. We used to stay up late at night having this discussion about what is consciousness, and you know, one of the questions we'd sort of debate or pose to each other is if you could take, um, you know, you and an exact copy of you and temporarily put them together and then pull them apart and then kill one of them, yeah. would you still believe that, that the you that was you 
would you still believe that you were alive? Yeah. I mean, obviously the one alive would believe it was you, but would the original you? It's a really well, interesting question. Concept, listen, these are issues that I have been exploring in the domain of language because the concept of identity itself uh, is intimately bound with uh, the language and the pronoun structure of English and the way we formulate sentences to describe our experience. It's entirely possible to formulate uh, equally uh, what accurate uh, strings of text about our experience that don't require identity at all. Identity is a very shifty thing, <laughs> a very tricky thing. And it, once you it straighten is. out the language side of it, a lot of the questions turn out to be really just nonsense little word games that we play that don't actually hook up to experience at all. They're words about words about words, but they just end up as little loops that go around without connecting anywhere. So who knew that we had sort of this common interest in um, consciousness and evolution and, and the matrix and all that? Well, nobody until we, until we did this, see, until we got a chance to talk for a few minutes. See, that's exactly. when all this stuff comes out. Yeah, the neat thing is that we really – I remember um, about uh, – Six months ago, I walked into the office one day. I was alone, and I was um, in our kitchen where we have our coffee maker and our refrigerator and all that. And I, I don't know why it struck me at that particular point in time, but I'm looking at the kitchen and the fridge and the coffee maker, and it's like, you know, all of this is actually a representation totally inside my head. It, it is, yeah. and you sense that it's there. But in reality, there are certain inputs into your brain that are creating the, the image and the visual and the experience and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, you know, this whole idea of the matrix, it is so totally possible. Oh, I mean, who's to say that this isn't a, well, a lot of people have suggested that that's precisely where we are now, is that we are, in fact, running in a simulation of somebody, some high school kid in some larger universe or something. And we, we absolutely could be. This <laughs> yeah. could be uh, – we could be part of a civilization. And by the way, this isn't actually my um, primary core belief, but it's absolutely possible you know 50 60 70 80 90 years in a in a simulation on a particular planet under a particular set of physical rules with yeah. a particular set of other people yeah. and then you die quote die and then you're reincarnated quote reincarnated to the next simulation and that's just how yeah. we entertain ourselves and keep ourselves and each time we sort of wipe our memory banks clean yeah. Because, you know, you get sort of jaded and bored and you've got to rediscover and that's the fun of, quote, life. You know, it absolutely could be and there is no way to prove that's not what it is. You said but, this isn't a core belief. Do you have a core belief? Well, my, I, I absolutely believe that's where we are going. I think uh, we will be there in 50 or 100 or 150 years unless everything goes Unless off the rails. Unless we just rails. blow the whole damn planet. Yeah, yeah. technology yeah. or, yeah. or uh, civilization breaks down, which which could happen. So it's not guaranteed. Well, civilization, I think, will break down, but I think that's I think we're very close to that. But I think uh, that won't be the end. That'll just mean the end of the way we have been doing things and the beginning of a new way. Yeah. It so, could get very so nasty, though. That's the problem, is it could get very ugly in the interim. Yeah. But it could also go very gracefully. I, I think 
um, you know, my so. back to my core beliefs. Uh, <laughs> life is incredibly important and valuable and sacred. And um, you know, the, the idea of any person ever harming uh, another person in a physical way is just. It should never, yeah. ever happen, yeah. you know. Or even um, you got a. There's probably a line here, but even animals or other life yeah. forms. And yeah. obviously, we have to eat and farm. And yeah, we don't. And, no, it's not obvious that we have to eat and farm. It's not even obvious that we need to ha- travel around in a monkey that needs to. Uh, you know, eat and do all those things. That's if fine. we take a fifty-year view, I totally agree with you. Yeah, yeah. at no, the right moment, now, yeah, at the moment, yeah, I still right now, I think we're still stuck in the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I like my monkey. It's it's. Yeah, I'm happy well. with mine too. It's sort of you fun. Know, yeah. In fact, it's the best thing I own. It's better than any of my other possessions. My monkey is phenomenal. It's it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it can hey, do incredible things. Listen, Dave. You know, I do need to cut this off here because I've got some other things that that uh, that I have to get on to. I got to get over to Starbucks and and start my regular room. And Heron, I think you started the first of what might be a uh, several part series here. Well, I'd love to continue with you sometime, and we can do it. I, I know you're a much busier guy than I am, so really, uh, you know, we can just uh, do it at your convenience. You know. Well, let's just um, we'll say it's going to be sporadic because yeah. it is hard to carve out an hour here and there. Yeah. You know, one of the things about being a, an entrepreneur is you're sort of seven by twenty-four on oh, it, so there's always so much more to do than can be done. Yeah. But I would love to do episode two at some point yeah. and episode three, and so let's just agree we're going to yeah, find a way great. to well, do listen, that. You're welcome to join me in my my cast anytime. Uh, you know. Usually, of course, there's nothing uh, happening, uh, so I play old recordings. Uh, I've been playing some Alan Watts lately. Are you familiar with Alan Watts? I am not. Oh, boy, have you got... Well, I don't know if you do or not, but Alan Watts was... Well, I, Who I was Alan? Tell, Alan Watts was one of the original sort of popularizers of uh, Zen Buddhism in the United States. Mm-hmm. He started mm-hmm. writing back in the 1930s, but he actually became quite popular in the 1960s. And there are, are hundreds of hours of his lectures uh, that were recorded. Was and, he still alive to enjoy that? No, well, uh, no, he died in 1973. Okay. And... Um, Anyway, my, what I usually tell people is Alan Watts is the guy who got my spirit, my spiritual virginity, and Alfred Korzybski is the guy who knocked me up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Korzybski is a Polish linguist who uh, also wrote back in the 1930s and is almost unknown, but I think probably... Well, he wrote a book called Science and Sanity in 1933. Okay. And everybody I've met who's actually read the book says that it's probably one of the ten most important books that have ever been written in the history of this galaxy, or at least this wow. arm of the galaxy. Okay, so I'm deep into two books right now that I have to get through mm-hmm. that are very important to me in business. Yeah. And I have read recently what is ranked as the number two most important book to Americans uh, other than the Bible, and I absolutely loved it. But uh-huh. you're making a recommendation, and I should say it, it was a t- Atlas, yeah, Atlas you know, Shrugged. Oh, love. Yeah. yeah. What a great book if you're a capitalist. Yeah. But all of that said, <laughs> you, you've made such a great pitch for this book. Well, I'm, listen, I'm not sure I want to recommend it. Uh, I, a lot of people because? have tried to read it and given up. 
it's a tough book. It was written almost a hundred years ago, what, eighty years ago now, by a guy who was from Poland who was a crank at best. <laughs> and it's a long book. It's like eight hundred pages. Uh, his style is not easy. However, like I say, everyone I know who's managed to get through it thinks it's one of the most important books that has ever been written. Well, and, that's and such an interesting, it, it's, interesting it, recommendation. It's a, it is a good one. Let me tell you about two books I'm reading right now that are contemporary. That you okay. Might, hold on just a second. By the way, Aaron, have you ever read Atlas Shrugged? And I, I don't know if it's sort of up your alley or not, but it's, it's very long as well. You're too far away from your mic. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I was <laughs> going to say, uh, I have a bibliography on my website. I, oh, by the way, and I, and I put a link in the text. I don't know if you saw that a, a minute ago. I did. I jumped to Kurt's yeah, website. Yeah, that's a three-hour interview, uh, a really good interview, an in-depth interview with him about the concepts of the singularity. Oh, okay. I'll, might, I'll, might I'll find kid, a way to put that on my How old are your kids? 18 and 15. Oh, they need to read, they need to see this. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, in any case, uh, and now what I'm adding also is the link to my bibliography. Uh, those are all the books that were most important in my development. But recently I've, I've discovered two books. One of them is called Computer Theology. Hold on one more second, because I want to get that, because the subtitle is really interesting. I see you have Seven Habits. Uh, that's a common book for between us, I should say. I must say I, haven't, I have not read most of the rest of these, though. I, I am a bit of a reader. Um, <laughs> well, that's probably a lie, too. Um the two I'm reading right now that are just knocking me out. I've given, I've, I've, I've switched from one to, I started reading computer theology and, and it's called, and the, the subtitle is Intelligent Design of the World Wide Web. Okay. And what he's suggesting, I think, actually, and it took me almost a month to get through the first 20 pages because every single paragraph I needed to read it at least three or four times, put the book down, write for a half an hour before I could get on to the next paragraph. It's the, one of the densest books I've ever read. There's not an extra word in there. It's, it's, it's amazing. And part of what he's, I think, suggesting, because I'm only a little ways into it, is that if you look at religions as a method of human organization, that there's a core there that has nothing to do with the concept of religion or theology, but about how people organize and get things done, and that how we can apply that to the World Wide Web. So huh. that's an interesting one. And the other book is called Emergence. And the subtitle of that book is The Connected Lives of Ants, Brains, Cities, and Software. Hmm. Both really thought-provoking books, I'll tell you. Now, I, I do see a few others on here that I've read. I see that we have some common intersection. The man who mistook his wife for a hat. Oh, yeah, good old yeah, what's Oliver Sacks. Yeah, what, yeah. what a great yeah. book that was. But yeah. I don't see uh, Stephen Hawking's uh, Brief History of Time. Yeah. Um, May I recommend that if you haven't read it? Um, you know, I probably have read it, but it... Uh, it's you know, a, I actually don't it's remember. Short, it's a reasonably yeah. short 
read. It's a short book. Uh-huh. It's incredibly clearly explained. But I felt like uh, when I read it, it was like, okay, I can die now. I understand how we got from zero to 13.5 billion. Oh. It's it's amazingly interesting. Okay. Um, but I'm going to I'm going to plow through your list. Uh, we we have a a, a common um, obviously a common interest in uh, a, a lot of more things, than one actually. thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we'll right, just here. take it from there. You know, this was a, a good start and I'm looking forward to further conversations, Dave. So And uh, so am I. This yeah. was really way more interesting than I thought it was going to be. So thank you for the pointers. I will dive into some of these things and I okay. look forward to it. All right, I'll look forward to it. Bye bye. Take care, Heron.